Hello to all you boys next door, mums and dads, new weds and nearly deads, and welcome to Dangerous Amusements, a podcast where we talk about the music of Elvis Costello. I'm Stu Arrowsmith, and in each episode I'll be joined by a special guest to chat all things Elvis, and I'll be asking them to help me compile the ultimate Elvis Costello playlist. Now remember, don't make any sudden movements, because these are Dangerous Amusements. Pleased to welcome to the podcast a writer and broadcaster whose work you'll have enjoyed in Mojo, Q, The Enemy, The Guardian, the BBC, and many other places. Welcome to Dangerous Amusements, Paul Stokes. Hi, thanks for having me. No, it's great to have you. Great to uh, to see you, and thanks for coming on. You know, it's a bright sunny day, and we're going to spend some time talking about Elvis. So everything is temporarily fine with the world. Absolutely, and a rare privilege for me. So my, my generation of music journalists, he wasn't quite as prevalent until I started working with the Cues and Mojo to this world. So it's all, any opportunity to talk about Elvis is always welcome. Yeah, good. Well, it's funny that because he is he is regarded, isn't he, as being the kind of music critics' darling. Have you always found that in the different places that you've worked for? It's funny because yeah, when I first got into Elvis Costello, I had no knowledge of this uh, connection he has, and it seems to me. It's he, a lot of American music critics are massive Elvis Costello fans, and I've sort of found out that's because a lot of them look like him. They have the sort of short hair and the glasses, and you know, without wanting to overgeneralise, a lot of the sort of when I went to America on the first sort of press trips, I was like, and these people would be into Elvis. You go, yeah, you, I can see why in a way. Um, but for my general, so I didn't know any of this and got into Elvis Costello when I was at school and went to university, really into him. And then it was only when I started trying to be a music journalist that people were going, oh yeah, all music journalists into Elvis Costello, and I had this horrible moment of going. Oh, I'm just a cliche. I thought I was like a man out of time to, to, to use an intentional pun because none of my school friends are into it. And yet here I was, you know, like 10 years later, I'm like, oh, I am just like all other music journalists. So yeah, he is quite popular with us, particularly of a certain age group. Although when I was at the NME, he, it was very much like, who, what, you know, what, who's that guy sort of thing. He hadn't been in gorillas at that point, you know, so uh, no one knew who he was really. But yeah, once I was doing the cues and mojos, people like Tom Doyle, who you've had on the podcast before, then I could start having proper conversations with these people about about the man. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned that you got into him at school and then into university. What was your way into his music? So when I was 15, I think it was, I was at, um, at that age where m- music was sort of becoming very important in a lot of my friends' lives and my lives. But I hadn't had that moment, you know, when you go, this is mine, this is the music, that the lightning bolt moment. And you go, yeah, I've got really got to be into, you know, know. so I I would hear stuff that was going around. It was just before Britpop started properly. I think Suede were on the scene, but, and I, you know, I really like Suede now. At the time, it just hadn't quite made that connection. But I was actively trying to seek out my artist. And so there was this newish program on BBC Two called Later with the uh, keyboard player from Squeeze, uh, Jules Holland. And um, I just started watching that to see if I could, you know, because at the time, this is 1994, there was no or 1995 was it, there's no um, uh, Spotify, you know, it's mad now talking to sort of younger writers, like how did you discover the artist you're really into, oh, I just listened to like three tracks of hundreds of artists and just kept going through it, and yeah, it was it was these sort of chance collisions, so I watched this programme, and this this guy, Elvis Costello, had reunited with this band called The Attractions, who I'd never heard of, but were the first act on, and uh, it was a brutal youth album, and they, I think they opened with 13 Steps Deep Down. And it was just like that, it was that moment that changed my life, where it was like, wow, this is amazing. And I could, couldn't rewind it, couldn't, and none of the stuff you can do today just was like, what did that just happen? And then I think later in the show programme, he did uh, Rocking Horse Road. And then yeah. off the back of that, I think I must have scribbled down the name, went out and bought um, Brutal Youth 
on CD, which which mesmerised me at the time because the only CDs I had were like at the time were like TV themes because I quite liked you know like right. listening to Morse or the Grand Grandstand theme or something and it, and it had a picture when you bought the CD it had like the picture of the album cover sort of slightly embossed over the top of it I was like, oh, this is amazing and instead of revising for my GCCs I remember sitting there and just listening to Brutal Youth from start to finish on headphones I think I was in a room with my my dad would be watching the football and I would just sit with the headphones on listening to this record backwards and forwards backwards and forwards obsessionally and that obviously was the moment and then got me into Elvis but it also it was like the missing jigsaw piece where suddenly then suede made sense because obviously later they go on and cover shipbuilding but there was that moment where you suddenly go ah oh, I can hear that element of that's what he's doing and they've picked up on that and then this other band from Manchester came around and they had this song called DC's Diner I'm like that sounds really like Elvis Costello so suddenly Oasis sort of started making sense and so for me that was he was the way into my contemporary music as much as he was the way into this sort of weird little thing that only I listened to. And it was quite funny, like teachers at school who really who were, who were like the right age, like Elvis Costello in inverted commas, they would go to my, my parents. Oh, has he got into it through you? Like, it was one of my history teachers, Mr. Kane, was a massive Elvis Costello fan. And we'd chat about it. But he'd go to my parents, Do you, is this why he likes it? And they're like, we don't know who he is. My parents are slightly too old. <laughs> so, it was, so that was it. It was that watching later with Jules Holland. Uh, in 1995, I think it was. That was the moment, or 94, I, that, that connected me to Elvis Costello and then Elvis Costello connected me to wider music. And so I've always found it funny, going back to what you were saying earlier about Elvis Costello being a um, music journalist's favourite, because there was that real sense that he didn't like journalists for a long time. And I always wanted, always had the fear that I, at some point I might meet him or interview him and say, oh, the only reason I'm a music journalist is basically because of you, mate. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> So what were you getting from Brutal Youth that nothing else had connected with you about before? I think in it, retrospectively, I can look back and go, ah, oh, yeah, that's these are the elements. But I think it was just the the, the, the guitar sound, which which is ironic, considering I now know that Elvis is not the greatest of guitar. You know, that, that record was quite a departure in a lot of ways for him in terms of the prominence of that instrument. And also just the words. I mean, 30 Steps Down, the amount of, um, which is the single that they played from, the amount of words that are crammed into that, track and I don't know why but there's something about that that like just trying to get in to decode it or you know she sits sales with fashion finger now she's like what, what does it what does this mean and at a time when there wasn't the internet to be able to look I think I first used the internet when I went to university so you couldn't even look up the lyric to know what it was they weren't printed printed in the sheet and so I was would be trying and this is like a big thing about like my early getting into us because I try and understand not only what these lyrics were but what they actually related to did they relate to something bigger that had happened or existed or are they just this guy and they were like my, my science fiction twin off that record I was like, is there some amazing story? And I still quite haven't got to the bottom of it. I'm sure I probably could, but I kind of almost want to leave it there. Where it's like, so did he go out with someone famous? What What's this whole thing? Where, where does it all come from? And I think there was that element. So it, it pulled you into its world. I think that's the, the thing about Brutal Youth for me, of, of his records. It has its own sort of claustrophobic little world. There's so many words going on. It sounds amazing. Mitchell Froome's production is quite unique to Mitchell Froome. I think if you made a record sounding like that now, people would almost call it old-fashioned, but at the time it was making the most of CD and how clear you could be on a record. And it, it just it just was a thing where you could, as I say, you sat there with headphones on, listening to all the disc and going, what, what is this thing? What, you know, just inhabit. And, and, it, and even now, I mean, it's a record I, I know so many of the lyrics of, so many of the songs of, and I know in sort of people look at it in Elvis's canon and might say, oh, it's, you know, I, I think some, there was a website that rated all his albums recently and it was really way yeah. down. I was just like, what are you doing? To me, it's such an underappreciated record. I just spent a fortune on it because I missed it on um, when it finally went on vinyl. And um, yeah. on the red vinyl, I missed it. And I, I had to pay a fortune to get it off eBay just that I had to have this record on vinyl because it's never been on vinyl before. And it was, yeah, it's just, 
as I say, it's that combination of the words and just just the the rawness and the atmosphere of the guitar sound and the way it's recorded. It's it's such a funny little record in in, in a lot of ways. It, it should sound more punk than it does. It's a very clean sounding yeah. punk record. But when I was at Q, there was an issue um, called the album that changed my life, and I oversaw that. And everyone used to say, "Oh, what's the one?" the record for you and I'd always have the same answer I always knew the answer to that it's not one I was just oh, it's brutal youth changed my life there you yeah. go yeah it's interesting isn't it because of our age we're probably not expected to be an Elvis Costello fan but when you look at it he was occupying a lot of the same space as the bands that were new at the time so he would be on TFI Friday and it would be on the White Room and all of those things he was in Q he was in Mojo so all the things that we were reading brutal youth he was in the enemy I think he was a cover in the enemy so he wasn't completely separate from the newer generation, was he? No, he kind of was lucky because there was a real... Until recently, there's been a massive chasm between what was considered active music and catalogue music. And Q had sort of come into existence because no one did catalogue. Um, I think it was 1986, the CD reissue campaign was really kicking off. And so the, the large part of the ethos of Q was that no one was writing about Paul McCartney or David Bowie, which now seems absolutely crazy when, you know, I think by the time when I was leaving NME, we would be writing about these people all the time. Uh, but he somehow managed to be both like a Q mainstay and would, would I remember reading like reviews of the Shepherds Empire gig I've been to in the back of the NME and you'd be going, oh, okay. And he'd be great because in the sixth form com room when you'd be talking about, you know, Blur and Oasis and all these bands, who I, you know, I did really, really love. But at the same time, I'd always have this sort of like, well, Elvis is better than all of them sort of thing. Um, <laughs> that, that you'd be able to go to your friends. We'd all share the NME on a Wednesday and, he'd, and people would go, oh, you're, who is that guy? I don't really get it. I don't, who is he? He's old. And then every so often he'd appear in one of these things. I mean, it was in queue a lot, to be fair. But yeah, he would, there'd be an NME review or something like that. He always seemed to manage a little bit like David Bowie. He always had that sort of contemporaneous that... There was never, I don't think there's ever a time if you listen to what Elvis Costello does where you go, he was so at odds with what was going on. You know, there's always an element of he's interested in in other kinds of music. I mean, we'll probably talk about it in a bit. The the amount he consumes other people's music is just, you know, puts most music journalists to shame, myself included. And so he's never been that thing where you go, God, that's a really old fashioned sounding thing. Who is this guy? He's he's, he's a million miles from what's going on. And as I say, for me, with, with Britpop and a lot of the bands that came out of that, there was such a connection in terms of the sounds, the way they were writing words. You know, Damon Albarn, you know, an artist I've, I've been very fortunate to spend a lot of time with, they'd covered Oliver's Army, even though Damon describes it as the worst ever Blur recording ever made. Uh, that, that immediately, I went and managed to track a copy of that down. But the way he uses words, the amount of words he wants to put in the song, so similar in a lot of ways to what Elvis does, different kind of lyricist, but just, you know, that importance of connecting it together and, and you know, having having something more than just, oh, you know, chorus, move on, that kind of thing. There was there was just that, all those connections. Then obviously when all, all this useless beauty came out and they had that series of EPs as well, which was quite handy again to be able to make that validation point to my friends I, I stood next to mickey from lush uh, the, you remember he played he played the roundhouse before they reopened the mm. roundhouse in london i forget the year and it was like port Lewis in the back it was literally just like an old train shed that fall about to fall down and he'd somehow his promoter had somehow got him the, the venue reopened just for this one-off gig and i remember at the end of the gig i've been stood next to the whole gig and went so I'm really sorry, but you're, you're Mickey from Lush, aren't you? And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm probably the only person who knows who you are. And she's like, yeah, probably, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, do you mind signing this, my ticket stub? Because Lush had done a cover of one of the Almost Beauty tracks. And it, it was quite, I don't know if it was by design or whether it was just, you know, sort of, you know, they, they had the same publishers, whatever. But that, that series of EPs where they did engage with contemporary bands, you could see the songwriting, how much it was as current when a band like Lush took, took his stuff on as opposed to when he did it himself. Hmm. 
Let's start picking our way through some of the songs that you've added onto our playlist for us. Five tracks, each one of them from a different decade of Elvis's career. I always feel I should say, for the benefit of my guests, uh, the caveat that they're not necessarily your five favourite songs, uh, but just five that you think would be good for people to go away and listen to. And the one from the 1970s, you've gone for a track from My Aim Is True. That's right, uh, Waiting For The End Of The World. Waiting for the end of the world just never seems to get, it never seems to be mentioned anytime you talk about Elvis Costello as a great songwriter or, you know, best ofs or that. It's sort of this sort of forgotten little track. And um, I mean, come on to the words in a sec, just the sound of it. It has this sort of West Coast American riff going all the way through it. It's near the end of the record. And then when I first heard that on this uh, Demon Reissue, I was just like, what is this? This is, I mean, again, I was unaware of a lot of the music that he was referencing at this point, the country stuff and the Americana, or what would now be called Americana, probably wasn't even known that at the time. And I was like, wow, what is this sound? This is amazing. This is, you know, that riff, just the way it keeps rolling like a train. Just, yeah, this this makes so much sense. And then when you get into the to the lyrics of it, this, this, this sort of proper story of, you know, someone sat on a train and coming across these weird sort of characters who appear, you know, a hippie who's you know, smoking dope on the train, this weird, this weird, uh, you know, the bridegroom, the congregation, the priest have got on the train with three stations east, this runaway marriage thing. It's not a runaway bride, it's a runaway marriage. Elvis has to go even more so. And I'm just like, did this actually happen? Is this, the way it's written, it's so vivid and it's so American sounding that I'm sure in, in a lot of ways it was probably inspired by the district line, but it's to me, it's something in my head, it's some weird combination between the New York subway and coming out in Coney Island and then being in the middle of a desert or whatever. It's such a vivid piece of songwriting. And again, I heard this at the same time someone like Jarvis Cocker was, people going, oh, have you heard Babies? What an amazing song. And so again, it, it was one of those things that by hearing this track, it made Pulp make a lot of sense for me. It really was like a Rosetta Stone of modern music. And it's such a fantastic, epic story song. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of people will, will go on about, you know, he lays it all on the lines for, for, for his tracks. I mean, that, that's one of the big attractions. But when he takes a step back and does one of these sort of clever, well-plotted pieces, you just go, wow. How, where, where did, I'd love to know where this song came from in a lot of ways. And a lot of ways I probably don't want to know because it was probably, you know, just sitting on a tube getting inspired by the weird characters you often see sat opposite you. Yeah. Well, Elvis told Nick Kent from the NME back in the 70s that he's the man in the first verse. Um, he, he wrote it after apparently seeing Kent out of it on a tube train and he said to him, you didn't even notice all the other people in the compartment staring at you. I was just amazed that one person could draw that reaction from others. And then obviously he goes on to develop this. It's almost Dylan-esque, isn't it? This cast of characters who just roll in through each verse of the song. Yeah, and it's beautiful that you it's the descriptions of them. There's no there's no sense it is like being stuck on a train. I mean anyone who's lived in London will look will listen to this and go, Yeah, I, I can empathise with this making up stories for the people sat opposite me or what they've been up to or who who are they yeah. or why are they reading that book, that kind of thing. And it it, 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 but it's all on description. There's no attempt to kind of get behind it or explain it or you know it, 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 it's it's so well drawn yet so enigmatic. 
And as I say, when I first heard it, there were bits that I was going, is this some sort of thing that happened? And he's kind of, you know, like the, the, the runaway wedding. Is this, was this something that was on the telly at around the time it was written? I remember getting a, a really dodgy Elvis Costello biography out of the library just to try and find out about this kind of stuff because obviously I couldn't look it up anywhere else. And I don't think they even mentioned the song. <laughs> and it does really fit in well. He has this really good way of describing describing travel because like like later on we were not it's not in our playlist but there's um the hoover factory obviously everyone's probably favorite b-side which um i don't live too far from the hoover factory in fact now it's a tesco's um and it is that when you (laughs) when you listen to that song and the twangs of that there is he has a real ability to write about travel and and make the music that goes with it and there's in fact there's another song uh i might mention when we get but when we go back to brutal youth perhaps in the 90s but where you just go he does have this amazing ability to get motion into his tracks and the the motion in this one does feel like a rickety old subway train but it also is a bit more than that there is there is that sense you're progressing even though musically it probably doesn't vary too much i mean i think i once tried to learn it on a on a guitar and it is pretty much the same riff all the way through you do get this sense of moving through this song as you do with hoover factory and a lot of the other stuff he does yeah Released on My Aim Is True in July 77 and, of course, backed by Clover for that first album. And people like to ponder what My Aim Is True would sound like if it was done by the attractions instead. But, of course, we get to hear that anyway through all the live recordings that are are out from from that period. And I really love the attractions versions of this song on things like El Macambo and the Hollywood High. Um, You know, you get that. Sorry, I, I was going to say you get a much more prominent organ from Steve Naive, but that sounds like something completely different. But um... It becomes an express train, I think, when it when it gets played live. Yeah. It's an yeah. speed up on a, on those bootleg yeah. versions, doesn't it? It's like, okay, you know, they, it, it, it's interesting, yeah, with the way that way, way Clover take it is this sort of like you know, laxy daisy. You know, there's a real haze, I think, to it. You know, but maybe the, the passenger is inadvertently um, getting a secondary hit off the uh, legendary hitchhiker. Whereas, yeah, live, <laughs> it's 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 quite. I mean, I imagine there's probably an element of like, oh my god, I've written a song this long, and we're putting it into a quite punky set at a time when punk is and a new wave is really kicking off. Do we really want to be playing a, you know, a, a song? Because live, it could become five, ten minutes if you really wanted to. I mean, I imagine if they did it now, you could you could imagine the breakdown in the middle of it, everyone are taking a a part and a verse and all that kind of thing. Yeah, but yeah, when the attractions had it. In the late 70s, it had to become this sort of, yeah, really rattly, let's go for it, you know. And it, in a way, and it's interesting because it adds a sort of desperation. The, the, the wedding scene at the end, you know, all along the beach, don't throw out a lifeline until the way out of reach. When, when you do that at speed, it's quite sadistic almost. Yeah, yeah. What about live performances? When did you first start getting to watch Elvis? So the first live show I went to was at the Royal Albert Hall in, um, it must be, not, when it, which is the year that Brought Youth came out, so 95, was it? Um, and I, um, I, I bought ticket. I rang up on the phone and bought two tickets to go, even though like my mum said it was all right to buy the tickets, but I wasn't sure who I was going to go with because I wouldn't be allowed to go by myself. And um, in the end, my dad was forced to come with me, and he went absolutely mental, I remember, because he's seen the Rolling Stones at the Royal Albert Hall in, like, 1960-whatever, and he was complaining that the sound was terrible. And he's like, oh, there's no point going there. It's, uh, I, you know, I hadn't been to a gig in, like, in the intervening time almost, but he's like, oh, I'm not going, I'm not going, it's, the town's always terrible. And I, we were going, well, they've got the mushroom things on the roof now. So in the end, he was cajoled to come along and uh, watch it with me. And the, the, I remember the support band, again, this... 
these weird connections into the contemporary. The sport band was an unsigned cast, you know, um, the spin-off from the Lars band. But, and, yeah. And, yeah, and it was like, you know, that's quite, who are these guys? I remember, I remember like a couple of months later when they when Fine Time came out and they were quite hyped in an evening session with Stephen Mack and stuff. I was like, oh, I've seen them. And I'm like, have you seen them? Like, they've never played live. And I went, oh yeah, they supported Elvis. Um, so that was the first gig I saw. So luckily an attraction show, you know, properly. They were back. They were bashed up as the attractions. I've got the t-shirt with a tour on the back and I went and bought that on the time. And then off the back of that, then any time they played London, I think probably almost for like 15 years, I probably went to every show. He had, he had, he did it, I think he did it twice. He did a couple of residencies at um, the Shepherd's Bush Empire where he'd play every Friday night for a month. And I, and I if I was... Could just about conjole it i could get to go the friday and the, the, the friday what the first and the last one so i think i went to about two of those and by by the last one i was allowed to go by myself and whereas my dad would always be like no we have to sit down i'm not standing the last one i was allowed to stand downstairs um right. uh, i went to and i have elvis's patron from that gig which was like i got oh, right. i got to all, all sorts of trouble coming back out late because i because as the crowd parted i wasn't at the front but i sort of drifted to the front and everyone was going oh, it's kind of the set list kind of the town i just went to the to the uh, radio, I said, like, "Oh, can I have this plectrum?" And he went, no. "So he threw it, and it dropped into the gun." I thought, "Oh, this is it. I've lost this, 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 this is holy relic I could have had." And very kindly, the bouncer turned his little flashlight on and picked it out for me, gave it to me. You know, so I've always had, oh, even before I've obviously come to rely on them as a music journalist, and you know, crew are, are, are the most helpful people in the world. If you're trying to get an artist, they'll tell you when they're in a good mood or get you into things. And the same with bouncers; once they recognise you, they're really friendly at venues. But even even from that, before I was into any of that, I was always immensely grateful. To to roadies and, and bouncers because they like, I have this plectrum in a little tin somewhere it's a uh, yeah. <laughs> really thick plectrum one millimeter really, I was surprised how thinking right. at the time I, I just start trying to play the guitar myself and inevitably bought a jazz master as well and was using very thin yeah. picks and he's like I was like he probably goes at this he's really thick yeah, you know yeah, slab yeah. of plastic yeah Paul Stokes written down the neck like Elvis I, I wondered if you could do that yeah I've got, I do own a Japanese reissue of the Jazz Master and I remember right. buying it in a, a shop in, I think it was in Stevenage or somewhere like that Hitchin perhaps and uh, I went in I had driven all the way over there to get it was it because it was it was like a decent price second hand and the woman went to me well oh, you a Nirvana fan then because obviously he'd been playing the Jaguar at the time and it was like the cheap yeah. knockdown you could get one of these unfashionable Jazz uh, Jazz Masters that looked like and I was like no, why? What Nirvana? <laughs> I've never, I've never been a big Nirvana fan, but um, I was like, so offended by this. That is Elvis Costello. That's guitar he uses, and it's like the, yeah. the the sunburn color, not quite the same, but similar. And so I had that for years. Great guitar. You're listening to Dangerous Amusements, a piece of stale bread curling on the luncheon counter of life. Those attraction shows were when they got back together because you could already see the sort of tension right. mounting again between one one third, one quarter of the band and the other three. You were like, you know, they, they clearly got on and clearly still do. Um, but there was a real, there was a real energy, and there's something about Thomas's bass playing. I know, obviously, him and Elvis are not seeing eye to eye, but he just really the way he attacks the bass. I don't think any of the other bass players have ever seen Elvis. Uh, who Elvis has used do it in the same way the bass is still I mean maybe it is maybe it's a legacy of the relationship between uh, Bruce and, and, and Elvis that you know the, the other bass is sort of know maybe not to go too crazy but yeah the way he really attacked the bass and, and the way that then that was sort of fighting with with, with uh, Pete Thomas and and then Steve Naive that that little combination those, those sort of three or four years where they were back as the attractions were, was like for me wow what an amazing sound and um, I think as well that but the, the 
the, the way that he played with Pete Thomas. I mean, Pete Thomas is probably the best drum I've ever seen live across any band ever. Mm. I'd really, the way he can just go absolutely insanely. It, apparently, he's going crazy on the, the drums, but actually, he's straight back in at the right beat. Um, you know, and I think he got a lot out of the, the relationship with with, uh, with Bruce Thomas, just the, uh, the that sort of sparringness. So that that was great. I mean, uh, I remember meet, meeting Pete Thomas once at a band called uh, Phantom Planet. Uh, they were a Californian band. I think his daughter knew them really well. They were in a gig in um, the Water Rats in uh, in uh, King, King's Cross, and, I, and, I, and the guy in the band was um, the actor Jason Schwartzman. I just interviewed him, and he was like, "Oh, you should meet this guy. He's uh, Pete Thomas. Yeah, you might have heard of him." And I was like, "Oh, <laughs> can, can I just say you're the best drummer I've ever seen live?" And he went, "Yeah, it's a good start, definitely." <laughs> but a very lovely man. And I met him a few years later, and he just knocked tapped me on the shoulder, and went, "I know you, don't I?" And I was like. Oh wow, yeah, sort of. Yeah. I bet you once. Nice. <laughs> so that was quite good. And, uh, but yeah, I did like. I saw him at uh, Elvis at Glastonbury. What was it? Two or five Glastonburys ago, maybe. And he played in the afternoon by himself. It was when when Margaret Thatcher died, and there was everyone was was going. Oh, is he going to play? Yeah. Is he going to play Tramp the Dirt Down? And there was something yeah. about that performance where, particularly on a big stage with just him by pretty much just him by himself, it, that was you know he. he, he there, there was those run of shows where he would used to end it by uh, sing, uh, singing totally a cappella. If he was playing in the right venue, like there's yeah. a few Albert Hall shows where he'd play the last song with no accompaniment, no microphone. Those were some of the, that, that sort of live get up was great. But then, I mean, to be fair, the last gig I went to before um, we weren't allowed to go to gigs anymore was Elvis at the um, Hammersmith Odeon, as I'm sure he would call it. Um, and that, you know, with the, with the backing singers, with the imposters and, there is something about that show where it's it's interesting. I went, I went to so many Elvis Costello gigs in the 90s where the hits would be begrudgingly played at the end. And now mm. they're like two songs in. I remember seeing him play um, <laughs> the Henley Regatta Festival, which I'm sure oh, will yeah, shock a yeah. lot of people that he ever played it. I got I got emailed by the PR saying, do you want to come and see El- uh, the Henry, Henley Regatta? El- you can get you into Elton John. I was like, can I go to Elvis instead? So, <laughs> so me and a friend turned up in bow ties. You had to wear a bow tie to get into this gig. It's ridiculous. And literally the... The first, honestly, if you were if you were to say to like Elvis Costello fan, go what 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 could be the best half opening half hour hits hits only you can pick from? What would the best set be? That's what it was because he'd obviously realised a lot of the people didn't, probably vaguely knew who he was without being super fans, and it was it was an amazing start to the gig. This sort of you know going full pelt uh, with the back with with the band was playing hits and with the backing singers. So that lineup can. As I say, the last gig I saw before lockdown, that show, and I also saw him at Blending Palace. He really can make a real impact with that with that with that lineup. Now it's it's quite quite a it's quite a good good twist of the, the energy they give, um, the, the, particularly the singers give to the uh, the songs. I do think it's a good addition to the lineup. The next song that you've picked for the playlist from the 1980s, you went for Love for Tender from Get Happy. So I've got to say, picking from the 1980s was probably the hardest task just to go. Because there's such a, a variation in what you can pick from in terms of sounds. You can go, you know, King of America, or, you know, Old Country before Old Country was invented. Um, Imperial Bedroom, obviously, you know, some, some of the stuff on that, Beyond Belief. I mean, you know, again, almost proto-electronic sounding music. Um, so I went for I went for Love for Tender because I thought a you, you know it's such a sort of 
I'm, you know, it's not really a track I can't imagine anyone would ever really shout about. And I just thought the reason, the reason for me, I felt it should be on the playlist is because, is a, it's not really, you know, because there are plenty on on Get Happy that you know, New Amsterdam, which could push it out of the way. But there's something about the punning on this track, which is on one level very simple and very cheesy, but I think it demonstrates why Elvis Costello works as a lyricist because you know, love for tender in itself is this sort of weird pun of like money being tender but also being soft and you know all these sort of weird rhymes you're so insincere just like a well-known financier all that sort of stuff and on anyone else's hands i think this song would if you covered it it would sound really weird and cheesy and why is he doing so many puns i don't really understand whereas with this elvis costello his ability as a lyricist i think a lot of it comes down towards his ability to master words and how he delivers them and yet yes he can write songs for people and he and, he, and he's done very brilliantly but i think the, the songs that he truly owns of his own no one else can do because he can stick all these hundreds of words in songs do these puns that in anyone else's hands would be terrible and it just sounds so plausible i mean i think this track obviously benefits from the the stacks organ sound that steve lays put in and the drums and stuff but it's just such a weird little chirpy little song right at the start of the record and you just go wow how how is he how has he made this work it's almost there's a real alchemy going on before your ears because it is borrowed organ sound lots lots of uh rhymes you know maybe and then it just go wow this is what amazing soulful bit of music yeah and it's one of the most effective album openers that he's done because it really sets the tone for what get happy's about isn't it they're short they're concise they have that motown stacks feel and this one Elvis has said they kind of use that riff from You Can't Hurry Love. So you're getting that kind of debt being paid to it as well. Um, but yeah, I just think it really sets the tone for what's going to unfold over the next 20 tracks, doesn't it? Absolutely. And it, yeah, I mean, the version I had, again, Demon Rich had 30 tracks on it. So it was like, wow, what is yeah. this? You know, how am I going to listen to this? He's got 30 tracks. Turn up on the CD. And, and like you say, they're all really short, really, really great attacky songs. And, and this sound, and again, this was when I think he the, the, the sleeve notes from Elvis really, for, for me as a someone getting into Elvis Costello, who didn't know, I knew obviously Motown because my parents had a compilation. But it was kind of weird where I so you 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 you'd listen read this thing and go oh, Motown what's that I, you know again no internet can't look it up so you go oh, that's interesting oh this is where that sound comes from oh, that's coming from this and then I remember seeing him I can't remember what song he was he, he did live but he worked in Tears of a Clown at the end of it I think it was Allison so he worked yeah. at the end of Allison yeah or, yeah and, it, and he did that and then I then I found we had Tears of a Clown on on like you know, 30 great Motown double CD, you know, hits or whatever. <laughs> and and it was just them listening to that and putting it all together. So, so A, again, I owe him the debt that it's suddenly like soul music. Ah, like, oh, thank you. I wouldn't probably wouldn't have discovered that for another five or six years just because of the way, or until someone had said, oh, listen to this. So, so he, again, it was that sort of, rec- he was a much of a recommender with that record. But also, he, again, he makes it his own. I don't think anyone, you know, New Amsterdam, it's a soul song, but also it's a kind of weird acoustic track. It's, uh, yeah. you, you, you know... It, Riot Act. I mean, Riot Act is such an amazingly soulful piece of music, but really brutal and, and ugly and, um, you know, quite a violent, violent thing about, you know, a crumbling relationship. I mean, yeah, Love for Tender is, is, is the setup for it because it is this sort of, it's quite chirpy, it's quite passionate, but at the same time, it's quite, there's a sinisterness to it, you know, like, you know, I could be a miser or a big spender, but you'll get much more than you bargain for. I mean, that that could be a threat, you know, it's like, yeah. but either way, yeah. it's delivered in the song, it's, uh, you know, it's, oh, yeah, you know, take your chance sort of thing. It's, um, 
yeah, it's, it's, as I say, it's not a song that, when you asked me to pick and I was going through the decades, it was the first one that popped into my mind for the 80s and it surprised me because I thought I would go for something like Tokyo Storm Warning, which I absolutely adore. And I love the fact as the single, if you got the seven inch, it fades out and fades back in again. I still think that mm. it's one of the greatest moments of formatting ever done in, in music. I always tell people about there's, this, there's a track that's so long that they left, they made it the A side and the B side. But, um, yeah. but this was the one that popped into my head and I just thought, you know, I'm going to be honest and just go, this is, this, this is, there's something about it that it kind of, I think it captures the energy and the words and just the sort of the strange thing that all comes together with the attractions when they're at their peak and Elvis when he, you know, was, you know, you look at the gaps between albums in terms of years. I mean, just coming thick and far. I mean, imagine doing a 20 track album having released, you know, only a couple a year or so before your previous album and then following this on incredibly quickly. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely amazing. Nobody knows she puts on secret clothes and lies in the metal with her hands tied behind her back. I won't refuse if you know how to use it. Just stop playing that ugly drug music. We've talked about brutal youth quite a bit already and you did say to me when we were talking about um talking about the podcast that um, there's going to be a lot of brutal youth mentions which is absolutely fine with me because it's uh, a big favorite record of mine that's the album that you've gone to for your 1990s song choice but i imagine you could pretty much have gone for anything from that record oh i mean yeah absolutely i've i've, I've, I've got it here somewhere i've got the songbook of that record that's how much i was into that record right. i went and bought the sheet music and um, so yeah i could have picked half a dozen record sorry i mean you know pony street with that opening piano sound you just oh, wow straight into this this crazy little world i've gone for 13 steps lead down just because as i said at the start it is the record that is the rep the track they played on on jules holland that made my ears prick up and go who is this guy with the glasses who is what what is this i need to find out more about this and it, it is and the more i sort of got into this track and found out stuff about it, it's great i mean i think the 13 steps are inspired by the espadrille in spain that he went on he was on holiday there and he vertigo kicked in at the top of these 13 steps and it's quite funny but anytime i uh when I moved house recently, I discovered we have 13 steps in Lee Town. It's just stupid little things. Oh, really? Like, like my mom, I didn't pick the house for that, but it was that sort of little... It just shows you how it punches into my world a lot. Um, and so that is a song, just the guitar solos in it, all that kind of stuff. And it, it, it it's quite an un-Elvis Costello-y song, maybe sonically, because of the guitar solos. And it's very, you know, goes for it. But words-wise, it's completely... Elvis, there's so many words in it stuck in. You know, he she falls a thousand fashions of England. You know, I can I can literally sit there and just hammer it out. And it's and it's funny as I've got to know older Elvis Costello fans, like really good friends of mine, talk about it. It's, it's a song that people just go, I don't really know that one. And even though it was a single, it just right. seems to generationally it seems to have sort of missed. And I I think it's I mean I'd say when it's up there for me with a lot of the this year's model stuff in terms of its attack. But as I say, the other song on that record, if I, which I had to choose between, was Rocking Horse Road. I mean, that it to me is yeah. such an amazing... Again, going back to what we were discussing with um, Wake for the End of the World, a real motion song. You really get a sense of um, uh, movement through that song, down Rocking Horse Road, through Cemetery Gardens and the mist and the, the Vaseline lens. The, you know, a real cinematic thing. And when we, um, One of my other jobs, as well as writing, is I, do, I help produce a radio show on Radio 6. And it's a Sunday night thing. And what we do is normally we make a playlist and people will suggest, the audience will suggest along a theme or an artist. And last year we got Elvis Costello in to do it. And he did it live. He was live down the line from Vancouver in his home Mm. studio. 
and uh, Tom Robinson, the presenter, would be they they'd share the lead. It was amazing. It's great seeing how Elvis really got into this. Like at the start of it, they'd be like, "Oh, so what was that about Elvis?" And, oh, tell him a song. And then by the end of it, he was doing his own links, and he was going, "Oh, I've got this track that's not out yet. Can I play it?" And we were like, "Okay." Sort of so you, you know, mate, really, mate. I mean, for me, just I annoyingly I couldn't be in the studio because of the lockdown. I was doing it from home, sort of. Yeah. Listening along, but. Rocking Horse I pick a lot of the music, or I go through the social media and pick a lot of the music that goes in. And Rocking Horse Road may or may not, because of my bias, got played quite promptly in that thing. And it was an amazing moment for me to hear him talk about that track. Because, I mean, I was almost welling up at home listening to it on the radio because I'd always thought it was a great song, like 13 Steps, hadn't quite got the appreciation in the canon from a lot of the fans. And he, just him talking about how art and visual art inspires his songwriting and how when they were touring, if he can find a little gallery, he'll go and listen to it. And just the way he spoke about Brutal Youth on that, in that sort of one little link, it was just, it, it, made, it, made, it meant so much to me because that record meant so much to me. It's not like, you know, sometimes you go, oh, that song's amazing. And the artist are like, oh, yeah, right, in 10 minutes. I'm like, oh, <laughs> so it was, it was a, real, a real moment. So yeah, 13 Steps is, has to be the pick because it, it is the moment I, I saw on Jules Holland. But I would recommend anyone... A, listen to the whole record, but if you don't know Rocking Horse Road, definitely take a stroll down that as well. Yeah, it is him doing the stuff that a lot of people want him to do because they love this year's model and those early albums. Absolutely. I mean, I I miss the Beard Years controversy because I was, you know, I, was just, I didn't get into it till, till Brutal You. And, and if you go back and listen to um, Mighty Like a Rose now, you just go, wow, what a brilliant record. How did anyone yeah. think... This yeah. is about, as I say, there was a recent internet rundown of his worst, and it was like the worst album or something. And I was like, well, A, um, Goodbye Cool World is his worst album. It's not, it's no, <laughs> don't, be, it's no, don't clickbait me here. We all know that's the worst record. He knows that's the worst record. That's fine, right? It's, it's not, it's, but you know, but Mighty Like a Rose is definitely not, I would argue, not in the in the bottom half. It's a, No, no. And it does seem to be this, this sort of sense of like, what did what does he think he was doing at the time? How dare he grow a beard? How dare he make a record like Hurry Down Doomsday with those weird sounds and all of that? And I think actually, if you listen to when we when we'll go on now to, to the sort of variety that Elvis has done, certainly since the turn of the century, it kind of is the marker record for this is the kind of artist um, Elvis Costello wanted to be. And I think Mighty Like a Rose probably suffers because like a lot of acts around the end of the 80s and early 90s, the idea of rock and roll going into middle age and then late, late later life, you know, people, fans and magazines couldn't really get their heads around it you know why are the Rolling Stones still touring now it kind of goes, oh yeah the Rolling Stones are touring again well, isn't that amazing they've got another tour and why has Dylan gone electric and then he's got this sound and he's worked with this producer oh he's doing crooning now isn't that amazing and I think we that, that record suffered from this this sort of cultural watershed where rock and roll grew up and then we all had to work as fans had to work out was that okay or not should should everyone have stopped when they were I mean it's amazing now when you go back and look at the coverage of that sort of stuff and people having to go at artists for being in their 30s and you're going yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, like, why aren't they, why aren't they 19 or whatever? And it's like, oh, now, now it's like, yeah, I mean, oh dear, they're in there. They're in, should, should they be touring in their 80s? That's the, you know, that seems yeah. to be. So I think that, that that's why that record suffers and has a bad rep. But, um, but yeah, it seems it seems so so weird that a lot of the people who would have been going, oh, why is he going to be and all that, didn't then go, yes, brutal youth. This is, you know, and that record should be back up with, you know, in, in, the, in the pantheon with. The seventies year stuff, it definitely feels like they, you know that first run of three records. It fits right in there, you know. Yeah. Without, I don't think it's a return to form because I don't think you ever lost form. But in that cliche, it definitely could be seen as that. And uh, yeah, it seems to be a bit neglected. To my, for me, it seems a bit neglected. Maybe it's just the Elvis Costello fans I, I knock about with. But yeah, I think uh, such such a brilliant record, really. Yeah. You talked about 
obviously working with Elvis, albeit remotely, on the Six Music programme, and obviously you've, you've interviewed him plenty of times for different publications as well. What has that been like, and what was the first occasion you got to work with Elvis professionally? Um, he came to the Q Awards. When I, I, to my, my start in my career at a magazine called Select, which folded about after yeah. three issues, which is annoying because I really loved it growing up. And then by chance, I got transferred to Q, which again, another magazine I love growing up. And I did a year on Q as like this weird sort of junior staff writer that didn't really exist role, but they gave me stuff to write. And so as a result of that, I became a Q freelancer a lot, perhaps jumped the queue quite quickly to become a, a regular. So I ended up going to the queue awards regularly. And I, there was one year he was there. I think it was the year John Lydon turned up on his um, uh, horse and cart and all that kind of stuff. And he was there. And I almost went, I was going to go up and say hello. And I bottled it. I was like, I can't do this. And I just thought, if he turns around and says like, who the hell are you? Go away. I was like, that's that's 18 records. I can't listen to ever again. It's quite a chunk of my record collection to throw out. So so I, I went out my way not to uh, engage, do anything about Elvis. I just thought I'd just be a fan. I would I'd buy the tickets. I'd go, you know, when he played the festival hall, I'd go and buy the tickets. I wouldn't ask for them. And then um, I went to the playback for the Roots album. Um, mm. And it was in, a, in the downstairs. Of the, I think it was the Sanctum Hotel in... in in just off Oxford Street and we went downstairs there and it was a big playback of the record it was amazing to hear because obviously again this is a record that you know it's quoting from right across his career yes it's done by the roots and it has this sort of you know hip hop funk flavours but also it's you know so many words so so Elvis and he was there and at the end of it the PR who's, who's a friend of mine was oh Elvis this is Paul and I was oh nice to meet you and he was all like oh pleasure's mine and I was like this is and I, I garbled something about oh He's hurried down Doomsday. Did I hear a bit of that? And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's in there, it's in there. And I was like, about re- recutting the lyrics. And I think we just, I think he was just like, oh God, I've got to meet another loony who's come to listen to my record that my, my PRs asked me to listen to. Um, me. And then, and I was just like, thinking. So, so that was the first time I ever met him, which was terrible. And I thought, well, I definitely won't want to interview him ever. And then I was kind of bullied into it while I was on the staff at Q then in, in the, I should know the year because it's 20 years at Q, United, uh, 2016. I was bullied into interviewing. They said, "Look, you've got to do it." His back page—it's easy interview. You can't—you can't muck this one up. And he was amazing. So it was all like silly questions, like, "What's the last book you read?" You know, what, "What's the last film you walked out of?" All that kind of stuff. And he was so good with this interview. And then right at the end of the interview, because it was twenty years of Q, it was going to be like twenty years on. I we were asking loads of twenty years questions, and he's like, he's like oh, "I don't really want to answer. I can't really remember." Let's just load. You load up Wikipedia, and I'll load up Wikipedia, and we'll just go for all the records that were released in nineteen eighty six. And we just went down this thing. It was amazing. Just like go, oh, Nick Cove. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, that one. Yeah. And just, just rating all these records that released. Like, and then right. obviously it came to the point when you obviously have um, Blood and Chocolate and King of America. And I went, oh, you released two albums that year. Your label must have loved you. And he went, no, it's completely opposite. They absolutely hated me. I wanted to get rid of me. <laughs> and I'm going, what? So you made, and I, I again, I, I should have known this, but I was like, what? So you made King of America and Blood and Chocolate on a label they wanted to get rid of you and he's like yeah I was like why didn't you make two rubbish records and save them and he's like yeah probably should have done shouldn't I? you know sort of thing and it was and so that so that was the first time I interviewed him properly and it was as I say I shouldn't I, I put it off for years and I, I was pleasant reward and then I interviewed him a few months ago for the quietest uh, when the Haycock yeah. face was coming out about 
the uh, 13 records that have um, he's really into have changed his life and, and that was a great process he was down the line from Vancouver I mean literally I had to just fortunately he'd written most of the entries so there was only the odd bits I think because he likes to talk that's one thing I'll say about Elvis he, he likes to talk so I, I think I opened off in a kind of like oh the last gig I went to before the lockdown was you at, uh, at the Hammersmith and then it, then it was like of my 10 minute interview 7 minutes went on oh yeah and then I had to come home and I wasn't sure I was going to come home and cancel the gig but no it was, that, that was a great experience as well and what I loved about that piece um, was just comparing it to the Vanity Fair piece he did like 10 years before where he picked, was it 500 records that you yeah, should listen to and yeah. it was like Star Trek 3 if you're not sure. Only, I think Iggy Pop was the only person who appeared in both lists and it was a different album. And it was this great story about the first time when they went to America but happened to be in San Francisco the same night as Iggy and how Iggy sort of looked out for him and was a great guy. And I just thought, and it just, just chatting to him, the way he consumes music is just so amazing because it is like it's genuine passion it's not you know the, the tracks he was, re- he was recommending gorillas because his son had got into gorillas via the animation route bizarrely not via the music route. right he, he's like yeah he's really and he does his own little remixes but he'd really got into the the imagery and that song machine project where they're releasing records going along that's amazing i was going surely if they ask you've got to be a gorilla haven't you and he was he wouldn't he wouldn't say yes or no which makes me think he might be on the next one the uh Right, song machine right. too because I mean he, he, he looked great as a gorilla you can just imagine the, <laughs> the exaggerated glasses and everything he'd be uh, yeah, he'd yeah. be really good as a gorilla but yeah so he um, the only way I could describe his consumption of music is heroic it truly is he just listens to so much stuff discovered he, he recommended this African artist of Bandcamp which was just mind-blowing track and you just go how did you find that he goes oh just looking around and it's and you could tell for someone who he must spend so much of his time making music um but also he doesn't have that a lot of artists when you when they're making music will not listen to other music because they're worried they'll steal something mm. or that and you, you, you can mm. guess for him i just think he must just always be listening or playing something or just just, just someone's recommendation i mean he and it, it's it kind of all fitted together then for me so going right back to the start where here was the man who helped me discover the music that I eventually got into and made my career covering. Of course he is, because he's the man who listens to all the music and would be the best yeah. recommend. I mean, he should, I mean, talking about playlists and that he should do that. He should have a playlist and just go, this is what I'm listening to, because it would be absolutely amazing discoveries, but completely, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know, you know, one minute, when we, when we did the radio show, there was an element of that. And he's like, oh, I'm currently into um, Lebanese funk at the moment or something. And he played this track and he go, this James Brown coming. Go, this is amazing. You know, how do you find all this stuff? But I think he just, yeah. he's, he's got open ears. He listens to when people give him recommendations and yeah, amazing. Heroic. He has a heroic yeah. music listener. Yeah. And he's so generous to other artists as well. Like I remember the piece that you did with him with the 13 tracks that he'd picked out. Remember he said of um, uh, Fetch the Bolt Cutters by Fiona Apple, he said there's more originality in five or six songs on that record than he's heard anywhere else in five or six years. I think, God, if you're Fiona Apple, you, you already know you've made a great album because Fetch the Bolt Cutters is a brilliant record. And obviously she knows Elvis, but to hear Elvis Costello give such praise for something you did must be amazing. Absolutely, because she covered "I Want You" as well. So I mean, she's obviously an El- I mean, Elvis Costello fan. I mean, this is quite the interesting thing now. I think having this this sort of perspective, but the amount of artists you know are Elvis Costello fans just from listening to them. You're like PJ Harvey when "Stories of the Cities" and "Story from the Sea" came out. I was like, I think she likes Elvis Costello. I'm not, I've never heard her mention it, but there's just elements about that record that make me th- make me think. And I think that is part is a big thing. It's like. He's he's such a generous person towards other artists that I think people will will eventually gravitate. Other artists will gravitate to him and listen to what he does and go, oh, actually, this is this guy is. I mean, as I say, I don't know anyone who could fit more words into 
in, into his songs. And I think a lot of artists learn from that how he manages to, te- to convey and get everything he wants in. You know, not not. I've heard something. There are songs you hear and you go, "There are too many words in that." Elvis Costello, there's definitely too many words in, but he makes it work. That's the difference. And I think so many artists have over time drifted towards him to, to learn from that that ability. One, two, three, four. Let's talk about another track that you picked out for us from the 2000s, from Momofuku. You went for American Gangster Time. I did, yeah. Momofuku is a funny little record for me because I, I went through a phase, I think because I was working and I was going to loads of gigs, uh, which sounds sounds amazing, but after a while you are <laughs> like, oh, God, I'm not another gig. I, sort of, I went through a phase going, any time Elvis played London, to then not, not really seeing him and not really engaging with the records in a way that I perhaps should have done. Um, and I happened to be in New York on a press trip, which which was amazing. <laughs> I, won't, I won't lie. Um, and I was in like a record shop and you know, on Beaker Street, and I just saw this record sat sat in the um, the racks. And I'm like, did that come out? God, how can I not know this is terrible? I've been too busy, you know, chasing uh, Arctic Monkeys or wherever it is around uh, around. I, I've missed it. So I bought this record and like a bunch of other stuff and brought it back on the plane and. Um, Got it, got it home and listened to it. And obviously, they didn't do nothing about it other than it had just come out. And obviously, then was listening to it going, that's Jenny Lewis from Rilo Kylie. Wow, what's she doing on here? And then, and, and so you suddenly go, wow, what an amazing record. And this, this, this song on it, I think, is, is, is a real standout track because, again, the amount of the amount of descriptiveness, the, the you know, the sort of it's such an up sounding song, but if you actually delve into the, into the words, it's quite a sordid little tale of um, pimps and prostitutes and things like that. It's, uh, it's, it's, it, it's a, it's a, Great. There was loads of songs at the time called American Gangster because the the film had come out. I think Jay Z did a whole record inspired by it. And it was a bit like, what, what's Elvis's take on it? And it really is interesting just to have this this other shade cast on that sort of murky world. And I think I think it's a great song. It's a reason it's sort of I had it has this resonance with me and I thought getting it was sharing like I then read about Momofuku the restaurant you know I think I was reading a, a GQ, American GQ magazine I picked up at a dentist or something I read about this restaurant that you know it's all about the guy who invented ramen Momofuku originally and then someone made a load of restaurants with the same name and then didn't, didn't really think much of it listened to the record quite a bit and then about three years later I was in, I was fortunate to be back in New York again to another press trip and we were in this neutral restaurant that I'd just been dragged to in a haze of jet lag <laughs> I suddenly realised I was in Momofuku and I was just like this sort of moment of like cutting through the jet lag, wake up and go, what? I've got a record named after this place. <laughs> and it was like, right, I need these restaurants. I read all about the chain. There's a great story about how it was all set up. And and, and like, and, and then how the record, it doesn't really have a lot of connection with the restaurants. It's more just about how quickly it was done and the fact, you know, it's instant and instant noodles and all this kind of stuff. And it, it just, yeah, just for me personally, it just has this sort of, of the 90s records, this weird sort of personal connection of, suddenly realising after about 20 minutes I was in the restaurant of a record I, I bought in New York and had taken home and named after, so there you are. And as you say, there's the Jenny Lewis connection because she was recording Acid Tongue at Sound City in LA, Davey Farragher was playing bass on some of the tracks, and of course Elvis duets on um, Carpet Baggers, and then thinks, oh, I could have this studio after you're finished, so books the time, gets the imposters in, and they just lay this down really quickly and it's so it's so tight it's so 
unfussy all the way through the record and it, it has a sort of garage rock feel about it all the way through doesn't it and American Gangster Time really encapsulates the whole vibe of the record I think absolutely like the version I've got the vinyl came with a um, graffiti stencil with the title of the track album on it it was like tucked in I was right. thinking who is this that? Who, who is going to buy an Elvis Costello record on vinyl and then go and tag it somewhere I, don't, I just I just like the preposterousness of, of, of that element to it but yeah I mean Rilo Kylie again another act that you just go they've definitely listened to a lot of Elvis Costello records and, mm. and Jenny Lewis mm. you know in her solo career as well she, she she's someone again who I think is very good at getting a lot of words into songs which um you know, I think I think it's a really it's, it's easy. It's not easy because I would do it, but you know, it's it's fairly easy to get a few words in and rhyme them and doing some lines. You know, the great lyricists are the one who could tell, can get what they want to say, whether it's a story or how they're feeling across, and get all the words in they need to do that to do it properly. And and yeah, again, she's someone who can do that. And I think they definitely seem within the, her, her formative days. And Riley Kylie seems to have definitely been influenced by Elvis. So it's nice when she sort of cropped up on this record at the peak where they were very. I think they were very much the in vogue um, magazine, music magazine band to write about at the time. So again, it's, it goes back to start that sort of constant contemporaryness of Elvis Costello. I always, always think it's weird those sort of nine, those those two thousands records that you know there are some that that that, that got a really big fanfare. Um, when I was cruel, I remember that coming out and being a really big deal. And then this record's almost slipped out and that wasn't really thought about. And actually, you're going, but it's got like one of the the cool at the at the time. You know, if you if you were being cynical, you'd be going, "Oh, it's the wreck featuring Jenny Lewis," but right across the front, it's interesting they didn't do that. I just think that integrity always would speak so much with Elvis. That the record was made quickly, so it was released quickly. Move on. Same with Kojak Variety back in the nineties. It was a quickly done. Move it on. It doesn't have to be. Mm. Not every record has to be like a Hollywood blockbuster release, which seems to be a big thing at the moment with a lot of the albums I cover. It's always like countdown to day one. It's coming out. And this idea, I think yeah. Elvis Elvis has spoken about himself of just finding records on the racks. I, and I genuinely mm. did this with this album. I think I think it's always nice when you you know you can know so much about an artist. You can stream everything. You can do that. But every so often, just to come across something, and go, oh, what's this? You know, that's the, that was a, that was a, con, a a common pleasure probably in the seventies and the eighties. And now it, it's almost lost. So to every, to every so often, get that moment of being in a record shop and going, oh, what's this? Better get this. You know, is, is a great thing. Yeah came out with virtually no fanfare but hasn't stopped it being really well regarded and really well reviewed the rolling stone review in may 2008 no one can turn vitriol into art better than elvis costello it's a drag saluting that starry rag it's really capturing the dying days of bush era united states and you do listen back to it and think oh god wait until you see what's coming down the line a few years from now um, i always think they, if we'll get a follow-up at some point i always think they were talking about american presence i always think donald trump is um the king of america the opening character in king of america by yes. accident this is my theory yeah. you know he you know he, he used abc news abc news that, that was as much of the alphabet as he knew how to use this total yeah. chancer and i do I, I remember when trump sort of became president going listening back to uh, that track and just going that, that's him, isn't it? He's inadvertently predicted this. Yeah. You know, I can imagine, you know, the whole story about Trump having a button on his desk so they, the butler bought him a silver platter of uh, Diet Coca-Cola and it's like, well, where yeah. they drink Coca-Cola like vintage wine. I mean, yeah. it's Trump. Classless. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> If you ask me nicely, I'll write you up well, don't tell me twice. Quote you directly or pay the price. Peel off your skin like a thin veneer. If something tells me something that I didn't hear from you. 
final track that you've gone for brings us right up to date from Elvis's most recent album, Hey Clockface, which came out in October 2020. And Hetty O'Hara, Confidential, was dropped a few months before that. It came out in July 2020, uh, recorded in Finland in the early part of the year, part of the Helsinki sound. What is it about this track that you like? I mean, in a way, it kind of could be a brutal youth track. The way he he did all those those, those Helsinki's, such a, an interesting record. Hey, Clockface, where half of it could be a sort of Dixie jazz soundtrack with him singing over the top of it, and half of it, as I said, you know, could be you know, an EP off the back of Brutal Youth, that real raw, fuzzy guitar sound. It's interesting because I think Hattie O'Hara was one of the one, ones where it felt like he was just going to drop out songs. There was going to be no album. It was just going to be like, oh, yeah. that's it. I'm just going to drop drop a song with a video every few months and that's that and then obviously it all it all sort of came together what i love about this track apart from the track in its own right which i just think is just you know it's just got the really beautiful hook in the middle middle of it really sort of cheeky it's just it's to me it's like it's a great comment on social media where you've you've got these gossip columnists this hattie o'hara confidently old school I, you know, I write my gossip column, snitching that, and now everyone's got a gossip column because it's called Twitter or Facebook, and we can just talk about whatever's happening, just the cacophony and the noise, and you know, it's a really good way of sort of examining that well by actually looking at the redundancy of the gossip columnist and you know that kind of that frivol scandal sheet sort of sort of thing. And I did, I did wonder at the time when I did the interview with Elvis for the Quartist because we talked a bit about this record; it was about to come out. Was like, what would my science fiction twin make of the end of Hattie O'Hara? Because you know, that is a song that always seems to be about, oh, you know, paparazzi and intrusion and gossip and people talking about him. And yet now, is it is, is my science fiction twin happy that Hattie O'Hara Confidential is out of business or is he upset because everyone is now Hattie O'Hara, whether they, like, they realise mm. it or not? And I thought I thought as a, as a way of sort of commenting on where we are with social media, it was a kind of fresh take because a lot of it is like, oh, it's divisive, it, it you know, it pulls... It, pulls us apart you know where people can get away but actually it's turned us all into paparazzi and gold I mean, the amount of people i see on instagram will take pictures of other people going you know at the moment it's oh look at this person he's not wearing a mask and you're going yeah that is bad they're not wearing a mask i agree but you have just papped them and invaded their privacy yeah. is that okay yeah, i don't yeah. i don't know i mean it's like and i think this by by turning it on itself and saying well we've become a society that trades in scandal and gossip that we don't need someone to write in a newspaper under an assumed name all this scandalous stuff is is quite a sad indictment on society really but, and it is yeah. a great song it's a real you know like like all that the stuff the Helsinki stuff on that record it is an absolute banger yeah she had an unfortunate character trait the irresistible impulse to assassinate but the damage she did was quite substantial yeah it does kind of you're right it completely sums up what we're doing online doesn't it yeah it's, I mean and again I think that's a lot of these songs you can, you can go back and think oh that's that's an interesting What's he written about there? And actually, so many of them are rooted in the time, and they and they and they really, you know, can be. You know, a lot of the trust stuff really is 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 a, is a great sort of mirror to what's going on in the nineteen eighties. But at the same time, you can listen to Trust today, and, and you won't go, oh, well, this is all out of date. See you later. His his ability to sort of deal in like like we were saying at the beginning, de- dealing in well drawn, you know, lyrics that kind of really illustrate and tell you about stuff, but actually isn't going like this song is about the thing that has happened yesterday and therefore you should all be out, you know, which, you know, there is obviously a place for those kind of songs. There is a place for protest music, but there is that thing where he has just such a, you know, ability to, 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 pro, to, to write a protest song that was going to be good for the ages, really. Yeah. Brilliant. Listen, it's been great chatting, going through all these songs that you've picked out for us. So uh, thanks very much for finding some time to chat. 
Well, thank you for inviting me on. It's been a rare privilege to talk so long and so much about Elvis Costello. Because if I do that in my house, I get told to be quiet by the four-year-old. So, yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Yeah, cheers, Paul. And you can find links to some of the articles about Elvis that Paul mentioned in that podcast. Just visit his website, paulstokes.blog, to read them. You can also follow him on Twitter, at Stokesy. We're on all the socials too. Search for Dangerous Amusements. You can listen to this season's playlist, Dragging the Lake, on Spotify. The theme music for the podcast is performed by Gary Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to Dangerous Amusements, sending you our love and vicious kisses.